Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy 3.16. Try to change up all of our music because we don't get but uh, once a year to sing all these great Christmas songs that we like to sing. So we have about 25 Christmas hymns and songs, and we try to pack them all into December in some fashion or the other. Uh, they're great texts that are dear to us, and so we sing them. They're, they're, they're great uh, theological statements for us. One that we don't sing, and I've never heard it really put to music, is found in 1 Timothy 3.16. But it's one of those hymns or praise songs that the early church sang. And I, I want us to look at it as a, a carol, a Christmas carol. This morning as we think about it, probably the, the best Christmas song we have that comes close to this is Hark the Herald Angels Sings, which uh, Charles Wesley put together. And, and the more you focus on this, the more you'll start saying, I bet he was, he was looking at this text. I bet he was meditating on this as he wrote that and somehow trying to put this to music, which I think was an early Christmas text for them. Let me read it. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I want us to think about this particular text this morning is as, as, as a hymn, as a praise song. Uh, when he uses the phrase, by common confession, uh, what he means, it, it's something we all know. It's something we all confess. And it, it's to us, it's like a song. It's like a hymn. Um, this is something that comes out of all of our mouths. This is, this is common for us. It would be like me saying, um, in the words of amazing grace, you would say, I know that song. So whatever he's going to say next, that's, that's a confession of mine. I sing that song. In the words of amazing grace, God saved another wretch. You would, you would get that immediately. And that's what Timothy is quoting here. He says, by common confession, it's something we all sing. It's something we all state uh, in one form or fashion. By common confession... Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, that phrase is, is again, descriptive. It's, it's by common confession, we, we all sing of this, this great mystery of godliness. And, and we know what the mystery is because everything else in this verse refers to it. This great mysterious thing is Revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What is that? Well, that's Christ. Christ is the mystery. Christ is the one who is great. He, the mystery is, is something that's been disclosed. It's now revealed to us. Christ was a mystery. Through the Old Testament, some pointed out, you know, there, there's someone coming. It's a mystery what he's going to do. In the fullness of time, Christ came and revealed the grace of God. And that's what the early church was singing about. Our confession is that, that he is great. And he's, he's been revealed to us. He's been declared to us. And then we have these six lines of their hymn. I don't know if it's six stanzas, six phrases. You know, I often thought in the worship war age where people were criticizing praise songs, say, praise songs are just little phrases. They're just little ditties. Well, here's a little ditty for you this morning, okay? Just six little ditties. But when you look at them, you see that they're filled with such substance as are many of the praise songs. They may be the same phrase over and over and over, but it's a phrase worth repeating. Think of Handel's Messiah. I mean, how many times does he have to 
to repeat a phrase, and yet the phrase is so substantive, it's worth going over again and again. And we get texts like that, like this hymn Amazing Grace. It's just so substantive, it's worth just going over it again and again until it becomes very common, something we can all confess and share. And I want you to see that in, in, in this text. Think, think about the singing of the early church. You know, we don't hear a lot about it. God didn't choose to inspire a lot of the, the early church songs. But when Paul and Silas are in prison, Acts 16 and Philippi, Philippi you know, they, they turn to each other, hey, let's sing. Somehow they both knew the same songs. Like they're, they're singing together and the, the people are, are recognizing that they're hymns, they're Christian songs that Paul and Silas are singing. And, and we're told, and I've, I've preached a little bit on this, look at Ephesians uh, chapter 4. It talks about, or uh, chapter 5, our responsibility to sing. He, Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 19. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord. So the early church, they heard the commands, okay, we, we need to do this. And they were doing this. They were speaking to one another. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs comes up again in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, this command says, let the word, verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The early church got the commandment that we need to be singing. We need to be singing psalms. We need to be singing hymns. We need to be singing songs. We need to be singing not just to God, but to one another. They were doing that. So they had a common praise that, you know, would go from church to church, just as we do today. And so that's what I think when we get in 1 Timothy 3.16, we're hearing a common song, one that they sang to one another, one that they sang about Christ. He is this great mystery that is before us. Well, let's look at the stanzas. Let's look at these phrases that was common to the early church that God has chosen to inspire and place here before us in 1 Timothy 3.16. First, he was revealed in the flesh. Again, I think of Charles Wesley's hymn, Veiled in flesh, the incarnate sea. Is he, is he looking at the first phrase and saying, oh, how, how do I communicate that in hymn or in song or in poetry? And, and he gets it. Uh, Christ has, is veiled in flesh, but he's Christ. And from birth, the virgin birth is declared. This one will be of the Holy Spirit. He is He's Christ, he's God in the flesh. From birth all the way to the tomb, he's declared to Joseph, don't, don't despise this one, he's going to be of the Holy Spirit. He's buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. From birth to grave, we, we know he's, he's God in the flesh. And that's the text, it's he this, this great mystery is that God was revealed in the flesh. Uh, think about Christ's pre-existence. He's awesome in his pre-existence. He's, he's part of the Trinitarian Godhead. He's part of the invisible God that doesn't have a body like men. And yet he comes and he takes such a body. He takes on flesh. It's, he was revealed in the flesh. Let's look at a few texts that uh, describe this. Look at John chapter 1. John 1, beginning at verse 1, says, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He's talking about his pre-existence. Comes after me. He was born six months after me, and yet he, he pre-existed me because he's God in the flesh. Verse 18, nobody's seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You see John there trying to, to take both concepts. He is pre-existing God who is now in flesh, explaining the glory and the greatness of God. Look at Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 4. Galatians 4, verse 4. It says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God's Son existed, but God sent him forth into flesh. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. See more of his glory and fullness. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Last days he has spoken to us in his Son. He appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, when you stop and consider that, God has spoken to us in these last days in His Son, the one who made all things. Think about this. The one who's the heir of all things. The one who's equal with the Father and the Spirit in substance. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Begin to contemplate God in the flesh and still upholding all things by the word of his power. Talk about multitasking. None of us come close to Christ. G give you one more passage to think about God in the flesh and what God in the flesh is still doing. Look at uh, Colossians 1. I love this text because it, it brings up the invisible again. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Good pleasure for all the fullness <clears throat> to dwell in him. I mean, we haven't tapped yet, tapped into that. All the fullness of God in the flesh. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his flesh, fleshly body. Let, let me back up. I start at verse 19. Let me, I'm missing what I want. Verse, verse 15. He, he is the image of the invisible God. So invisible God in the flesh, the firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens... And on earth, visible and invisible. First of all, when we think of God creating, we think about God creating us, the earth. He starts creating the heavens. I mean, that's a whole realm we haven't explored yet. And he's the creator of that realm. And he's the creator of our realm. Both things visible 
and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is above all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now think about that. Christ comes to earth in the flesh. He still upholds all things by the word of his power. He's still the creator of all things. He's still creating. Because things are constantly being created. And he's the creator. And he's not just creating things that we see visible, but he's creating invisible stuff. And when we, when we see his creation of this stuff, it, it's like, wow, this is God. I mean, I, I, I hated chemistry. I hated science. I don't like looking at stuff through a microscope. To me, it's, it's boring, and yet it's fascinating because there's a, there's a world there where we begin to see stuff that we didn't know was stuff. We didn't even know it existed. We all know there's an invisible world, and we don't think about it much. But God has created it. I mean, how many of us have seen a microwave? I've not seen one, but I know it exists. It warmed up my sausage biscuit, right? Nice this morning. You know, I look at it, and I can't see a single wave. Now, if I put something metal in there, I can see it create lightning. You know, I believe in microwaves. They, they amaze me. But I didn't create them. At some point, we just discovered them. We all believe in radio waves. We all believe in wireless networks. We believe in electricity. Where did this stuff come from? This is this invisible world that Christ creates and sustains. I mean, as I'm speaking, there's, there's things coming out of my mouth you can't see. And they float across the room. And we've discovered them. And sometimes they worry us. God is creating them. There's, there's so many invisible things Christ is the author of. How many of you are pregnant? You know, the psalmist talks about Christ forming the inward parts of our being in our mother's womb. And how amazing and wonderful is his work. It's invisible to me. I can't see it. He's invented, created for us these x-ray machines and sonograms and st stuff to give us a glimpse. But Christ... As, as we've got several pregnant ladies here, Christ is at work, invisibly here in this room, forming lungs and heart and blood vessels and intestines in this being, in, in you and in you and in you. And you think there's over 3,000 ladies in Anderson every year. God is invisibly at work in their womb, not just one of you, but all of you. And not just here, but that's multiplied through every city in the world. And that's our creator upholding all things by the word of his power. And when you begin to see this God who's created all of this that's invisible and all of this that is visible coming to earth in the flesh, still upholding all things by the word of his power, you say, unbelievable. Wow. This is so cool. And that was their first phrase of this song. This, this, is, this is good stuff. To begin to, to focus us on who God is. And he's, he comes so we can know him, revealing himself to us in the flesh. As you think of 
Christmas lights. Think of the light of the world. He's got so much to share and to reveal. And he begins by revealing himself in the flesh. Second, he's not only revealed in the flesh, he's vindicated in the spirit. Who else is going to do this? You know, when I think about being vindicated, being declared this one is who he says he is. We didn't do that. No man vindicated Christ. We didn't even want to. He's constantly despised and rejected. Um, Isaiah 53 speaks to it probably better than any. Um, speaking of Christ coming to the world, again, verse 2, it says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty. You, you know, you, you see certain people and they just, they look upper class. They look distinguished. They look like they, they are somebody. We call that being stately. And it says of Christ, he didn't look that way. Nobody looked at him and, and just immediately thought he is somebody. Rather, we had the opposite effect. He says, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. People weren't even attracted to Christ when he walked. I mean, he, did, he didn't have, he wasn't tall, blonde, and blue-eyed. You know, he wasn't the attraction. Or, I prefer brunettes, you know, and blue eyes. Actually, brown eyes. Uh, Christ didn't have any of that. He didn't have any of that. He didn't have that attraction. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. Have you ever been walking down the street and you see someone and for some reason they just their appearance is so unattractive to you, you just, you just kind of look the other way as you pass by. And that's the description they give us of Christ. He says, he, he was one, if you were to see him, unless he drew you in, you would look the other way. You would just ignore him. He didn't have the kind of thing, appearance that would draw you to him. He's not like anything you've seen in the movies. Forget letting people describe Christ for you in the movies. They don't get it right. They don't do it the way Scripture records it. And yet, he is before us, and we are to know him and see him. So he, since we're not going to exalt him, and vindicate him, he must be vindicated by the Spirit. Who's going to do it? And so back in 1 Timothy 3.16, says he's vindicated in the Spirit. A man considers him, even his crucifixion, his crucifixion, the Scripture is very clear, was outside the gates. Why? I mean, if you were somebody, you might be crucified, you might be tried, you might be dealt with inside the gate because you were a Roman citizen, let's say. And you deserved a certain dignity. But outside the gate, that's where they took the criminals. That's where they took the outcasts. That's where you went if, if you weren't anybody. If you were under a curse. And that's exactly where Christ went. We considered him criminal. We considered him under a curse and he hung on a cursed tree. So no one has taken him to the cross to vindicate him. He's vindicated in the spirit. Look at Romans chapter uh, 1 verse 4. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Here it's described his 
his vindication. Clearly, it's clearly specified here, but I think it was coming all along. If you, if you really stop and think about it and see it, see that it, it progressed. As Christ comes out of the temptation in the wilderness, you know, he's 30 years old at this point, been tempted, tried 40 days, 40 nights. He's been sustained by angels. He comes out of that experience. He meets John the Baptist and says, John, I need you to baptize me. And John's a little reluctant. Whoa, 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 whoa. Said, uh, I thought you were sinless. I do a baptism for repentance. That's not going to work. Jesus said, no, you don't understand. I'm asking for you to anoint me. I'm, I'm about to begin my priestly ministry. A priest must sprinkle a priest. He must be anointed for service. He said, so I want you to do this to fulfill this righteousness. And Christ steps into that moment, even with John being a little reluctant, and what does the Spirit do? The Spirit descends. And a voice comes out of heaven. It says, I don't care what anybody else said. This is my son. Pay attention. You can begin to see this, this vindication from the Spirit at the beginning of the ministry. And I think you see it uh, other places along the way. But you... Anyway, let me jump to the chase. Romans 1, verse 4. Speaking of Christ, he was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was vindicated. He was, he was declared when he rose from the grave. Says that's when the Spirit shows up again and says, See, told you, Son of God, one with power and authority over sin and death and the grave. He is raised. He's victorious. The Spirit vindicates him fully uh, as one who is truly who he says he is. Uh, you know, sin should have held him. Death should have held him. The grave should have held him. Why? I mean, it's held everybody else before him. The wages of sin is death. And the grave it holds those who die and are buried. And he took on the sin of the world. And that sin, he should be under the power of that sin. And under the power of the grave, and under the power of, of, of hell, should have been damned to hell forever. <coughs> the fact that he, he, he rises again is this declaration. No, sin doesn't hold him. Death doesn't hold him. The grave doesn't hold him. He has more power than that. God has received his complete righteousness. He's received it on our behalf, and he is proven victorious. No death, no grave, no sin holds him back. He is God. Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer. Um, rejoice. I mean, you, you've seen someone run a race, and if they're in first place, you know, if you've ever run a marathon, I have not. I've talked to people who have. You know, you, you all hit the wall at some point. I, I don't th even think about running a marathon because I hit the wall at about 600 yards, you know. But some people, they, 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 they run 10 miles, 11 miles, 15, 16, 18 miles, and then their body starts screaming to them, don't run anymore, quit, give up. And many people shut it down and say, okay, I'm done, I'm done. And then little by little, you know, some people push on. And one person gets there to the finish line before everybody else. And when he sees that tape, nobody's busted through it yet. When he sees that line, he goes through or she goes through, hits that tape and just raises their hands. And they're vindicated. We all know they won. They're victorious. They endured to the end. 
And, and that's the picture we get of Christ. He says, watch this. You know, he, he goes to the grave, goes through, takes all our sin, and he rises up, and he's victorious. And the Spirit's there to say, told you, he is God. Victorious over sin and the death and grave. He's vindicated through his resurrection, which is why every Sunday for us is Resurrection Sunday. And, and we rejoice in his power. He shares. He says, let me share with you resurrection power. You know, if you want to believe in something, believe in him who has resurrection power to give. Christ says, he who believes in me never dies because I have power over sin and death and the grave. What a him revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit. Third, seen by angels. Angels. That's that invisible world we don't think about much. Think about it more at Christmas. Think about Christmas angels. But the angels have always had an interest in Christ. The angels are, are there at the birth of Christ. And they're the ones saying to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's the angels who are there to say, This is something very significant born for you today in the city of David. I mean, angels are there. And they're pretty excited about Christ's birth. So, yes, he's seen by angels. They were there at, at the birth of Christ. They're there at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be an angel. Christ didn't die for them. He died for me. Uh, but I, I think it would have been so cool to be one of these. Look at, look at Luke 24. This is one of the angels at Christ's resurrection. They were there at his birth. They were there at his, as his resurrection. Luke 24, as I think about the resurrection just from the angel's perspective. I get excited, so I, I think it would have been cool to, to have been one of them. Luke 24, beginning at verse 4, says, While they were perplexed about this, behold. So, in other words, uh, Mary and other women, they, they come to the tomb. Uh, the stones have been rolled away, verse 2. When they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. That's the angels. So we got two angels here, and they dazzle. And verse 5, and as the women were terrified, I mean, this, this is a pretty shocking experience, so dazzling, they bow down, hide their faces. Then the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. How cool would it have been to say that? How cool would it have been to be one of God's angels? God says, okay, I'm about to raise Jesus from the dead. Who wants to go tell the world? Hey, hey, let me do it. You got to roll a big stone away. Got that. Let me do it. You know, he sends these two dazzling angels down. Let's, let's get this, this stone out of here. Jesus, rise. Jesus takes off, and these women come up, and they're, I mean, they're, they're just beaming, literally. And these women are perplexed, and these angels are the ones that say, we love seeing Jesus. You're not going to see him here. He's risen. He's already told you he's going to see you in Galilee. Why don't you go over there? He's going to appear. It's like, wow. But the, angel, the angels, they're excited. And I think you can begin to see the excitement. You, you, you saw the excitement at the birth. You see the excitement at the resurrection. The angels show back up at the ascension. Look at Acts chapter 1. You see the, the uh, angels there again. And again, I think it's been so exciting to be, have been one of these. Acts 1. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, 
Behold, two men, I guess maybe it's the same two, in white clothing. Here we go again. They're, they're shining. They're dazzling. They also said, men of Galilee, what? Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go. The angels loved looking at Christ. Because they, they understood Christ coming. They understood Christ rising. They understood Christ's ascension and where that was taking him. They get all of that. And, and I, think, I think they welcomed him into heaven uh, in my Revelation class uh, that I teach after this. Revelation 12, verse 2. I may miss it when I get there. But uh, there's a little phrase there you can miss. Revelation 12, verse 12 says, For this reason... Rejoice, O heavens. Who's he talking to there? And you who dwell in them. I think as, as Christ ascended and they opened the doors of heaven, that's God the Father saying, okay, time to rejoice. It's time to party. Woo-hoo! You know, and they, they get with it in heaven. Now, you may think that's silly, but... You remember, don't you, First Corinthians, excuse me, Luke chapter 15, where Jesus says, every time a sinner repents, heaven rejoices. How much more then would heaven rejoice when he who gives out repentance enters heaven's gates? All of heaven's hosts rejoice. To see Christ. And they continued on earth rejoicing to see Christ. Seen by angels is pretty cool. I shared this in my discipleship class a few weeks ago. First Peter, I love this. First Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 12 says, um, And he has revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. Talking about the preachers ahead. But, you, but he's serving you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And catch this phrase, things into which angels long to look. Now that's my translation here. The Greek has a word there that in English we don't have an equivalent for. And it's, it's, it's something like our English word long necks. But he's not talking about beer. He's talking about how, you know, can I squat my neck? Now I got a short neck. Now I got a long neck. Okay? We all have a long neck. Says the angels, they have these things about Christ. When Christ is proclaimed, angels put on their long neck. And, and I get this picture of of this, this heavenly host, is, there's a crowd, and you're trying to look through the cracks. You're trying to look over people. You're trying to look over the ledge. You're somehow trying to see. And he gives us this picture that that's what angels are doing. When Christ is at work in you and me, when he comes to earth, when he dies for us, when he rises again, when he goes into heaven, the angels are like, let me see, let me see, let me see, let me see. And they're just mesmerized. This is so cool. God in the flesh saving sinners. It's such good news. It's so exciting. The angels can't push hard enough to see it. Stretch far enough to see it. Because it's, it's such awesome news. When you see that revealed over and over through the scriptures, that's why the, the hymn text was, hey, let's, we need to put that in the song. He's seen by angels. The angels have enough sense to know it doesn't get any better than this. God revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed. Again, go back to Hark the Herald Angels sing. Miles he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, risen to raise the sons of earth, risen to give them second birth. Hark the herald 
angels sing. Glory, glory to the newborn king. All right, number four, proclaimed among the nations. Christ told us to proclaim him. Matthew chapter 28, as Jesus does meet the disciples at Galilee after his resurrection, just like he promised them. So they all gather there on top of this mountain, and this is his message to them, Matthew 28. It says, when they, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So he says, okay, I'm back. I have all authority in heaven, in the invisible realm, and in the earthly realm. And I'm commissioning you to go and to make disciples of me in every ethnic group to proclaim him among the nations. And that's exactly what took place. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, you know, this, this is a priority. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, verse 3, he says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Uh, verse 7, he appeared to James, to the other apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. He says, it's the first importance that I proclaim him. Uh, he told Timothy, he says, this needs to keep on happening. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Keep proclaiming the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and great instruction. He's to be proclaimed. And he told his disciples, he says, wait for me. Wait for the Spirit in Jerusalem. He says, when you receive power from on high, the Spirit, then proclaim me. So they waited in Jerusalem. Now the reason for the wait is God wanted them to proclaim him at Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, he would have in one place men from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 4 and 5. Acts chapter 2. I mean, who would have known to do this? Who would have thought about this? Acts 2, verse 4 and 5. says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from where? From every nation under heaven. Every nation is represented. And the very next verse says, And so the Spirit filled the apostles so that they could preach to every nation in their own language. Who could orchestrate that but God? Proclaimed among the nations. God says, I want this to go to every ethnic group. Tell you what, I'm going to make sure this happens. I'm going to bring all the nations to you, and then I'm going to equip you with a tongue that can speak to them in their language. So that they get that Christ, who Christ is. And so Peter preaches this message. And the other disciples are preaching with him, each one in, a, in the language of the crowd in front of them. And after the sermon is done, speaking of Christ, they say, what then must we do? Repent and be baptized. And 3,000 souls believed that day. Christ proclaimed to every ethnic group. Uh, look at Colossians 1, verse 6. And you see how far this has gone. There are other passages, but... Uh, 
I'm long-winded enough. Let's just go to one of them. Colossians 1, verse 6. He says, This has come to you just as in all the world. Where did it come? The gospel came to Colossians. But it also went to all the world. It did it at Pentecost. And it continued to do it. I mean, can you imagine? You got 12 preachers preaching to every nation, and then like that, you've got 3,000 preachers going back to their ethnic group, preaching the message. And the message spreads to every ethnic group. It didn't stay in Jerusalem. On one day, it went to every nation group. And that's without the Internet, anything else. God orchestrated, Christ would be proclaimed to the nations. As you go through the book of Acts, why were they willing to die? Why were they martyrs for the faith? When, when people would persecute them and, and arrest them and throw them in prison and say, quit, 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 quit proclaiming him. They said, how could we, we, we stop? How could we deny the one who, who took away our sin? That just can't happen. Why were they willing to proclaim him? their lives have been changed and they went to every ethnic group proclaiming christ no amount of persecution stopped it he was proclaimed among the nations now if you proclaim somebody needs to believe the next verse of the song proclaimed among the nations believed on in where just one little place no in the world he was believed in the world one of our most important verses in scripture that we hold dear Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Well, Christ was proclaimed. It didn't stop there. Christ was believed on. And everyone who confesses him as Lord and believes he is Lord is saved. And so the church continued to grow, 3,000 that first day. Next time the message goes out, it says it's 5,000. And then the numbers get to where you, how do you count every nation and everyone who's sharing it with their wife and their children and how it's being spread throughout the whole world, hearing of Christ how does this happen? But it happens by grace. It happens by gift. How could, you, how could you ensure that if you went to all this trouble to reveal yourself in the flesh as God, die, be buried, be resurrected, how could you ensure that you would be believed on? Well, how about make belief a gift you give out? And how about make repentance a gift you give out. And how about you just keep giving it out? And the reason we believe is because we were given the gift of faith. We were given the gift of repentance to turn from sin, to turn to Christ. And none of us are saved by works, but by grace we have been saved. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is a gracious gift. So God in His sovereignty has ensured we, he, Christ is believed on because he's continually giving out the gift of faith and repentance that we might believe. Acts 13, verse 48, the Jews had a hard time with this, and this is the turning point for them. Well, look at Acts 13, verse 48. It says, I, I thought God was going to come save the Jews, and we're seeing Gentiles believe. How, how, how is that happening and this is the answer. Acts 13, verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. God appoints it. If God determines to give you faith, you will believe. It's, it's, God has determined this. He's appointed salvation for his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Uh, rejoice 
Christ had to be believed he was. And then the last part of the song, he's taken up into glory. Um, taken up into glory. Look at Mark 16, verse 19. Mark 16, verse 19 says, So then when the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We get a little extra. We didn't get an axe. He didn't just go up into heaven, but he goes up into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of God. He, that's more of the, he's taken up into to, to glory. There's, there's a glory here. He, he sits on the throne. He sits down in glory because his work is finished and he is king of kings and lord of lords and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Um, you know, as I was looking at this, this song, 1 Timothy 3.16, I thought we typically have three verses. If, if we had three verses here, I know we've got six, but if we had three and the first verse was uh, all about uh, Christmas lights, let's say. The first verse would be Christ revealed. Revealed in the flesh. The second verse, let's call it Christmas ribbons. You get ri ribbons for doing stuff, right? He's vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Angels wrap something around him. Proclaimed among the nations. He's awarded the nations. Believed on in the world. So the first verse is Christmas lights, and the second one is Christmas ribbons. Then the third verse is Christmas wreaths. He's, he's taken up in the glory, and he's crowned. Or he's, a wreath is put around him, or a crown is put on him. He's exalted in to glory. And you see this, this text come to life exalting him. Look, look at Hebrews chapter 8. Let me share a few verses here. This Jew trying to explain it to us Gentiles that we would get it. Uh, Hebrews 8 verse 1 and 2 says, Now the main point is like, I, I know this, you're struggling with this. Let me give you the main point. It says the main point and what has been said is this. He says, we have such a high priest who's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. And he's like, do you not get this? He says, every other priest always has to stand up and they're always having to work. He said, the main point is Christ doesn't have to work anymore. He's finished. He's done it. He's a high priest, but he, his work's done. His sacrifice is once and for all. It's sufficient for you. He says, that's the main point. Verse 2, he's a minister in the sanctuary, and it's the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched. He, he said, in other words, he's in heaven. And he's, he's in this glorious heaven for you and me. Look over at chapter 12. Verse 2, he says, so fix your eyes on him, on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He can't get away from it. He is sitting down. His work is done. He's exalted King of kings, Lord of lords. Look at it. Fix your eyes on him. Is this not cool? Salvation is complete and finished in Christ. Pretty cool stuff. Let's, let's suppose you're reading some medical journal tomorrow. Substantial medical document authorized by the highest authority in the land. And the caption is, discovered. 100% cure for diabetes and cancer. Got your attention? You say, wow. You start reading. It says, yep, simple blood transfusion with a concoction that's now been discovered. If we give you this blood transfusion, you will walk out of that hospital 100% cure from all 
known causes and effects diabetes and cancer. That would be huge news in our world. And what I think Scripture is giving us, I mean, would we, that, that would be proclaimed to the nations. We, we, we need to grab this. This is cool. But what God is telling us about Christ is we have a cure for death, sin, and the grave. And it has cured 100% of the time all known causes of death, sin, and the grave. Believe in Jesus and you never die. You're resurrected. He has been taken up into glory that he might bring the sons of God into glory with him. That is so awesome. That's what we sing about. That's what we rejoice in. Uh, you know, all of us are constantly trying to, to defy death. We've all, everybody in this room, tried a diet or some medicine or some exercise or some scheme saying, well, this is going to keep me from dying. No, it's not. But we all try to defy death. There's only one person who has ever fixed death. Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, do you believe that? Believe in me. You'll never die. He has been seen in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up into glory. He's the only one who's ever fixed death. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Earlier I said, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give us second birth. What's the application? What do you get from this? You get to worship. I hope you didn't come to get anything. I hope you came to give Christ glory. To give Christ praise. To give Christ thanks. To give Christ your attention. To give Christ proclamation. To give Christ your treasure. To give Christ your all in all. Because He is all in all. The application, when we get it, is simply to worship. We should be giving to Him because He's already given all we need. As we take of the Lord's Supper, the word repeated twice, remember, remember, He, what He has done for you. The application, give Him thanks and attention, and glory, and praise, and exaltation, and worship, and treasure, and all in all. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the glories of Christ. Our eyes are so obscured, we we see through a glass darkly, dimly, and yet He is the radiance of your glory, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Let us see more of Christ and less of us. Let us see all that He's done, all that He does, how He upholds all things, even now by the word of His power. Fathers, we take of the bread and drink of the cup Let us remember and let us rejoice that Christ is ours. He's in us and we're in Him. Father, for those people here this morning who have never believed on Christ, open their eyes that they might see. Remove the scales. Take away the blinders. We know the God of this world blinds people. 
from seeing the truth and the glory of Christ. Hold him back and open eyes and hearts to see Jesus, that they might believe on Christ, who alone can be their life and their glory. Let them have this gift of faith. Let them turn from sin and embrace Christ. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.